0: Welcome. (laughs) Again. So, um, tonight, sadly, I bid adieu to you. Uh, It's been a wonderful month. Very, very happy to have been here with this sangha. I'm very impressed by the commitment, the sincerity of practice. Uh, It really has been lovely. The the discussions I've had, both in the room and then privately, I can really tell that uh, you're very serious practitioners. It's always a delight to have this kind of volley uh, examining, studying these teachings with people who are really committed. So, I bow to you. Thank you for that. Well, last week I started talking about something that um, a couple of people came to me afterwards and said, you know, that I didn't finish and (laughs) I wanted to but I had so many things to say about the first three of the five aggregates that I didn't get to the last two. And, uh, and yet there's so much in that that um, they had asked me if I would consider finishing that up this week. Um, and so that's what I thought I'd do. I hope, that, I hope you find it useful. But what we were looking at is um, this tendency to pick up the various experience uh, at the physical and mental level. Uh, I was using this expression of picking things up and not being able to put them back down again. This is the whole process that Buddha talked about of identifying, getting caught up in our experience of the body and mind and not seeing that we can have a completely different relationship with these. We can know these for what they are. And certainly we experience them, but they aren't who we are. And once we get that kind of understanding in relation to our own experience, you find that you suffer a lot less. Because this whole sense of me and my body, me and my mind, begins to break up. And there is just experience, physical experience and mental experience, and all the suffering that goes along with clinging to it. And by clinging we mean either getting completely consumed in it, Indulging in it, as the Buddha talked about it, or hating it. <laughs> it's like, you know, we hate our bodies and minds. You <laughs> hate it, what arises, hate experiences, hate even our own mind states. You know, it's like, here comes this hateful thought and we hate the hateful thought. It's it just, it's endless uh, because of our incorrect view of things, because we don't understand our experience at, admittedly, a much more intimate and subtle level than we're accustomed to in daily life. That's why we meditate because you can't see it so easily without some tools, without some experience of looking at things in a slightly different way. It's coming at things from another angle. So just by way of quick review, we we looked at the the body, seeing how it is that we pick up things that are going on with the body and talked about seeing instead the natural rhythm of the body, um, seeing that it knows what to do. It knows how to live life. It's been doing it perfectly well (laughs) for all these years, uh, taking care of the physical needs. There's a lot of uh, mental activity around this, however, and there's this constant sense of me who's always claiming experience. And um, everything happens. And then within the seconds following what happened, there's this little movement in the mind that says, I did that, or it's mine somehow it moves in and it grabs hold of and claims experience as its own. It's, a, it's amazing. But like in the example that I gave you of feeling cold and then I have to do something about that. Whereas if that whole, if I don't grab hold of that subtle impulse then you just kind of settle into experience and there's this very easy movement to get warm, to get cooler if you're too hot. These happen, these things happen very organically. But self is always trying to get in on the act. You know, it's like, and it's always like, I experience it as sort of like a day late and a dollar short. Everything just happened and it comes in and claims it as its own and tries to take charge. And if it would just get out of the way, if this sense of somebody who has to fix everything as re- in regards to the body would just stop doing that, you'll find you're much more relaxed. You settle into a much more direct experience of the physical form and it, it, has, a, it has an intelligence It knows what to do. I had this incredible experience one morning at the monastery where it was probably until then and since then, the only time in my life I've ever gotten right up when the alarm went off. You know, (laughs) it was like, um, and something in that movement where the alarm went off and I I had a charge. I had to ring the wake-up bell. So I was very responsible and overcome with this sense of duty and not wanting anybody to know that I didn't, you know, to... Be, the, uh, not have the embarrassment of not having gotten up and missing ringing the bell, you know, so everybody would know that, how, how sleepy I had been. So I just jumped right up. And somehow in that jumping up, it was as if my thinking mind or this sense of self didn't get up with me. And there was this these moments where it was probably about 10, 15, 20 minutes maybe, where there was a very clear and direct sense of having to put on, having to get dressed, washing the face, brushing the teeth. All of that was just sort of happening. And and all I can say is like there's this this sense of all of the chatter that goes on while that stuff is happening. It's not that it wasn't there, but it was sort of background. The dominant experience was just this movement and just this attending to things. So the invitation in meditation is to look and see for ourselves. Now see if this isn't true. Just look at the simple experience of getting up. It's like if I sit here and I say, okay, I'm going to get up now, watch me. Here I go, I'm going to get up. You know? And I say, okay, I'm going to get up now, watch. Watch, here I go, I'm going to get up. Right? And there's this sense of me, I'm the one who's going to get me up. And then there's this you know and you have to look at that as a meditator <laughs> how did that happen who did that and and examine and contemplate this sense of on the one hand of me as the one who got me up versus the experience of getting up and then this sense of a few seconds later, oh, look at me, I got up. (laughs) It's all mixed up in there. We have to discern reality a lot more precisely. Who did that? Who did the getting up? It's almost as if when the self gets out of the way, it happens. Or it happens and self comes in and claims it and says, I did that. You know, this is the the Buddhist teaching of the non-existence of self. See, We can see it for ourselves. It's not so mysterious. It's not so, you I know, mean, people think this is this really far-out arcane teaching. And, and it's not, really. You can see it very directly in these kinds of things. This sense of self is like an add-on. And it's interesting because there's like a disobedience here. You know, um, actions aren't really following the promptings of a self. You can see it for yourself. They're they're happening almost in spite of self. And then uh, either that or self is claiming them as its own. So you can see this very well, very easily, a lot more easily with the body than with anything else. So this is that sense of picking it up and putting it down. and With feeling, um, you can uh, see this almost instinctive movement to um, get more happy feelings and to get away from unhappy feelings. And I was just watching the dog today, you know, as she was like um, uh, following these sort of uh, highly, highly conditioned responses to things that she likes and doesn't like. You know, there's the sound of the, the mailman putting the mail in the slot and she goes crazy, you know, she doesn't like that, doesn't like the mailman coming to the house. Open a can of dog food. And that that little zip-top sound, you know, (laughs) and she comes running, you know, I like that, I want that, you know. (laughs) Just like this instinctive kind of snap-your-fingers automatic response. And I just laughed watching her because uh, I thought, that's no different than what I'm doing (laughs) most of the time. It's like this there's this um, instinctive reaction to things that we like and things that we don't like. So this is what Buddha's uh, Buddha's teachings are inviting us to examine. Uh, See for ourselves, see that that's true, number one, but see for ourselves if following those impulses is always the best thing so that um, pleasant situations we can discover aren't necessarily um, the best situations to follow. You know, there's a lot of suffering um, if we're just kind of uh, caught up in this conditioned response to pleasure. Um, And often we find that the most difficult situations in life are the ones that we learn the most from. You know, if we just have the staying power, if we just hang in there and endure, you know, Buddha says to just kind of receive the truth of, of pain, the truth of difficulty. And it's in that, it's actually going into that, that we free ourselves is not in avoiding it. So lots of times this effort to push the difficult situations away is probably the chief um, uh, sort of conditioned response that stands in the way of our own freedom. Because it's insight into difficulty that is one of the principal liberators. Besides, if we're always going with these things, we're caught up in this ricochet of life what Buddha called the, the worldly dhammas, there's, there's pleasure and pain, happiness unhappiness, success and failure, right? Fame and ill repute. And it's like we're always trying to get the one and get away from the other. And that becomes our whole existence. I mean, how many people do you know who that's their existence is just struggling to get away from one and towards the other one. And, and th- that in itself is a very much a, a suffering state, just that kind of activity. But it sets up this thing where our happiness is always dependent on externals. It's always out there. It's always dependent on what other people think, what we get, what we don't get. It's all out there somewhere. And that's, it's a horrible setup. We'll never be happy following these instinctive patterns, these instinctive responses. So the idea is to watch these impulses and learn for ourselves and see if if it it doesn't make some sense to try to work with difficulty and maybe on occasion not necessarily go with these longing um, impulses, these trying to uh, get gratified in one way or another. So that's feeling or Vedana, the um, aggregate of feeling. uh, And the the third one is sanya or perception. And the idea here is to see um, the mind do what it does, just to get a sense that there are mental um, functions, mental activities. There's there's a lot of things that the mind does and you have to hold them in, in a little bit more of a neutral way than we do instead of getting all caught up in what the mind does. So it recognizes things. It has ideas and beliefs. It has biases. It has views about ourselves and others, about the world. It, it remembers. It imagines. Um, it associates. It, it makes, it, it kind of like takes this moment and it relates and associates to other things that are very similar to it or different. And um, it, it's doing this all of the time. You watch the mind. This, you know, The idea in meditation is to begin to just kind of settle down enough to look at mental events as mental events. And, and you sort of contemplate like, oh, this is what it does. This is what it does. Can you see that? It's a very different experience than thinking we are those thoughts and those memories and those plans and those imaginings following that stuff is like (laughs) crazy-making stuff. You know, if we don't get a sense of impartiality, a sense of a capacity just to know these as mental events, is what the mind does. But it's not who we are. So, if we get caught up in these, what happens is we tend to solidify ourselves over time, you know, as people who are a certain way, and this is really one of the most difficult things about attaching to perceptions and views, particularly as they apply to ourselves. We have these images of who we are. <laughs> you know, and, and granted, there are patterns and there are habits. And, and to some extent, maybe in a conventional sense, you could say that's who you are. But if we lock into that, and cre- what we end up doing is creating a permanent person And it's in a very subtle way, just that attachment, that belief prevents us from moving beyond things that we've long since grown beyond or that are difficult or harmful. You know, it's like there's a subtle perception that makes it difficult for us to see things as they really are, that things are arising anew in each moment. And in every moment, there is the opportunity to do things in a different way, to be, quote-unquote, a different person. <laughs> you know, but we have this idea of who we are. And I know, you, I know you know what I'm talking about. We all do this a lot. It's a source of a tremendous amount of suffering. We, in, out of the same attachment, we have this sense of the past and the future. So our, our sense of, of the present Is always taking a back seat. You know, it's amazing, but watch your thoughts. Watch what's going on and see how much of our energy, our mental energy is preoccupied with yesterday and tomorrow or not even tomorrow, just five minutes from now. What we're going to do, who we're going to be, what's going to happen, what did happen, what was, how we hated it, how we liked it, wishing it could be that way again. We're like we're almost completely caught up in these perceptions. You know, the past and the future are actually just ideas. They're just views. they're just perceptions in the mind. and yet they, it takes on this mammoth reality such that we actually create a very solid sense of yesterday and tomorrow. It gets very, very solid. And, and we can 't relate to now anymore. <laughs> I mean, look at our lives. we can 't relate to now. It, just, it takes all this you know you have to clear out all this junk just to get here, don't you? you we sit in meditation, and we, all we 're trying to do is just kind of be <laughs> be here, you know and and ooh, you have this going on, and this how hard it is just to settle into some sense of, of now it 's all past and future pull into making the past and the future sort of concrete. It's very strong. And so that we can't seem to rest in the present. So this attachment to perception, to to sanya, it it locks us into a very limited view of things. The mind makes perceptions, and that's fine. And there's there's ways that it's very useful. We use perceptions a lot in meditation you know, to to help us to uh, move in a more skillful direction. But the ones that are difficult are the ones that we want to see. You know, and the biggest perception, the biggest view that we lock onto is this sense of self. So the more we're locked onto this, the the less likely we are to actually be here. (laughs) You know, to be uh, just in this present moment. So now just to, to look at these last two, and they're very, very interesting. It gets, it, gets, it gets more complex, and it gets harder to see. But it's not outside the realm of our capabilities as meditators, especially if you've had some insight into these first three and have been able to see that the, uh, the experience of the body and mind at that level with some detachment, with some impartiality. So the, the fourth one is called uh, mental formations. These are, the, the Pali word for it is the Sankaras. Um, and they're, it, you can think of I mean, them formations as a translation for this word, um, Sankaras, is a very good one. It's like, it, it is the mind forming things. It's like it's picking up perceptions and then building upon them. You know, it might build a case, build a story. You know, it just it just lingers with the perceptions and proliferates about them, so that you might have um, an, a, a thought arise about something that you'd like to do in the in the uh, tomorrow or something about a vacation or something like that, and then you'll, you'll be lost in thought about that for 20 minutes, right? Just playing with it as an idea. It's like the sankaras love sanya. <laughs> there, there, it's like they're constant. This one aspect of our mind is constantly looking for some idea, or perception, or a notion that it can pick up and play with. It just likes to create and build and create things. So it's a formations, mental formations, uh, and the idea is to see these, to begin to get a sense of the mind doing that. So this is something the mind does. Um, And one of the most common ways that we looked at this, as I said, looking at the more difficult ones um, can be the most helpful. And um, at at the most coarse level, maybe, um, the the formations that we examine are the the five uh, mental hindrances. These are all sankaras. These are like highly conditioned mental uh, arisings, mental formations. They're... um, you may know them as uh, desire, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt. And each of us relates to life through these five a lot, don't we? <laughs> you know, it's, they're, they're highly conditioned patterns of thought. And uh, so what happens is that when they come up, this identification that we're talking about, this, ten, this picking them up, Is uh, something that is the source of a lot of difficulty for us, but it's one of the things that we do. We pick them up, we pick them up, and we get caught up in them. Basically, what happens is that there's something, there's a situation or an encounter, uh, maybe a person, and we come into contact with them, and then a mind state arises in relation to that particular situation. We hate it, we get restless, we get agitated about it, we start worrying about it, we get very confused. You know, we want it. Um, These mind states are highly conditioned to arise under certain um, conditions. So we get caught up in them and we pick them up. Now the idea in our unawakened state, what the mind is trying to do in picking these up is actually you know, it's okay. It's like it's trying to deal with something. It's trying to deal with life. It's trying to to deal with the situations that life brings us. Um, it's trying to resolve problems, resolve issues, but um, getting uh, by getting us like uh, to a more pleasant state, or getting us away from something that's unpleasant. You know, but in the unawakened state. It's like these five hindrances are the best that the mind can do, you know. It's like they're so highly conditioned, so habitual, that there isn't any reflection about whether or not they're doing us any good, you know. It's like we don't don't even examine this. Everybody in this room knows that wanting more, doesn't necessarily make us happy. Even getting more doesn't necessarily make us happy. You know that. that yet this impulse to long for and to reach out for and to grab um, doesn't. It, it's almost automatic when it arises. We follow it. You know, it's very, very highly conditioned. Does, does aversion free us from difficult situations, or, or does it make them worse? <laughs> It's like now you not only have the difficult situation, but you hate it. <laughs> it's bad enough before when you had the difficult situation to deal with. You so see, as meditators, you sort of examine, is, is checking out, you know, is like depression or lethargy or sleep, you know, is that a remedy? Is that really a remedy for difficulty? Yet this is what the hindrances hold up. They're like this carrot, you know. It's like, here we go. We, I got something. I know, I know how to deal with this. Let's go to sleep, you know, <laughs> or, or, or let's check out. <laughs> you know, that's the best that it can do. It's, it's amazing. But in the unexamined mind, that's what it is. Worry, agitation. Has worry ever solved anything? Has it ever solved anything? And yet we pick it up over and over and over and over again. We all know it doesn't help intellectually, but the conditioning is so great that you can't help but get caught in it. So, as meditators, the effort is to begin to discern, to see, examine these things. Does doubt lead to certainty? That's what doubt in the unawakened mind is trying to do. It's trying to get us out of confusion. And and it's interesting because it's ironic in the the Buddhist teachings. It's almost as if they're saying, be okay with confusion. (laughs) Be okay with not knowing. Sometimes we don't know. But the sense of self has to know. It wants to know. It wants to be on top of things. It's in control. I'm the boss. I know what to do. You know, and so we get in there with this sense of getting caught in this state, which is actually doubt, and it's actually a very painful state. But it's in an effort to try to break out of confusion. You know, if we could just rest in not knowing, it, it would be okay. And, it, and it, from that state, it's interesting, because things start to sort themselves out. Or they don't, and it's not a problem. <laughs> it's okay. But sometimes we just don't know. So these five hindrances aren't the remedies that they present themselves to be. You know, as I said, they're the unawakened mind's best guess. And it's just not good enough. You know, we can do better than that. We can do a whole lot better. So we have to see through these habitual responses and, and, and find more sensible ways of responding to life. And that's, that's our job really as meditators is to, to break out of these patterns so, by mindfulness, and it doesn't matter where you come in on it. You know, people say, well, you know, I'm always seeing it after it's over. I just, you know, was lost in it forever. That's good enough. That's huge. That's a big difference than not seeing it at all, either being caught in it or hating that we're in it. You know, it, it's, a, it's a much better state. And gradually, I think if there's any measure of the success or the progress, if you will, of your meditation practice, it might, one of the ways is to to see, are you coming in on it a little sooner? You know, maybe coming in on it more as it's happening and maybe even occasionally seeing it start to happen and not going there. You know, it's just seeing it from that much more intimate level. So another thing that we do is, uh, another way that we pick it up is by hating it. See, greed and and, uh, hatred are just really the same thing. They're just flip sides of the same energy. You know, they're all, they're both clinging. They're both grabbing a hold of it. So we can grab hold of it by hating it as well. So this sense of self gets a hold of these things and we can be filled with a sense of self-hatred with our own states of mind. It's very strong, very rampant, self-loathing, you know. I hate that I'm so restless. I hate that I get so agitated. I I hate that I'm so confused. Why can't I see things more clearly? I've been meditating for 20 years now. I should be able to know this stuff, you know. I should get it by now. This kind of thinking. These kind of thoughts come up and we believe them. You know, we buy into them and end up with this condition of self-loathing. So can we find a more helpful way of, of being with our states of mind? Can we actually receive them as a risen mental phenomenon? Can you feel that? You see it as a risen mental phenomenon You know that's just happening in this moment. It's not who we are in any permanent way. It's something that's coming up right now you don't have to indulge it, believe it or not, we don't have to become these states. And if we do, we don't have to hate it. We don't have to hate the fact that they've come up. So you can, if you get a sense of it, you're beginning to get a, a new relationship, it's like we're more impartial, literally at this most refined level of our own experience seeing our thought patterns, seeing our mental states, and just noticing them as a risen mental phenomenon. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, the the implications, the prospects are phenomenal. So just uh, looking closely at the mind filled with hatred and seeing it just as that much. To do this, you have to get quite detached don't you can you you I mean, just just feel what that's like to have this <sighs> come up and be able to go wow I'm really feeling <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> to can you feel that it's like to you you're outside of it this is the detachment that we're talking about you're outside of it you're not in it The next moment you might get in it that's okay But even if for this moment you're outside of it, that's really great. So I I think I told you the story of uh, working with some people at the monastery that I was having difficulty with and and just initially um, being very caught in my contracted states around them and then um, beginning to notice that I was doing that and hating it and then trying to get rid of the fact that I was doing it by practicing metta, you know, <laughs> which, would, which for me in that instance wasn't, wasn't the right thing to do. I needed to open to the experience of the way that I was relating and the fact that I was hating the way that I was relating. So that, you know, as I watched myself just trying to, all these different approaches, you know, I could see that everything that I was attempting was just adding more pressure to the system. It was just kind of making it all a lot more tight until, you know, by the time I finally uh, saw it all, I was like this, you know. And then being able to loosen up and relax and and, and look at it more like, um, wow, you know, oh, I see what's happening. Every time they do this, I do this, you know. (laughs) Oh, that's it. Can you feel that? It's it's, it's very impartial. And then, okay, well then you get interested. Right there at that moment the uh, factor of enlightenment of interest arises. It's like when you get enough detachment you get interested. It's like, how does that happen? And what is that? What's going on in there for me? So you begin to see it with these new eyes. And there's no end to the interest that you have on the cushion <laughs> as you're watching states and off, you know, as you're watching these states and uh, beginning to sort out what's driving them, what they actually are, how we keep getting caught up. You can actually see this, you can, you, can, you can feel it, like the whole body will tighten when you move into these states and see what it feels like to release and let it go. So the idea is to greet each moment new, you know, to develop enough detachment even from our own states of mind to be able to look in this kind of way, to be able to look with this level of detachment. So I I know I keep harping on this idea of um, seeing these states of mind as a risen phenomenon as sort of resultant karma. But it's important to contemplate this that The results, things that arise, these these painful and difficult states of mind that arise are the results of having related to similar situations, to similar conditions, to similar um, states of mind in the past out of ignorance. It's a result of not having seen it before. That's why we're still doing it. So you can see why it's so important to contemplate, to get some looseness around this so that it, at least now, each moment is new, now maybe I can relate to it in a different way. Maybe I could, not, I, could, I could relate to it in a way that is not ignorant, that is not foolish, but rather one that is wise. And then I can begin to um, have some hope of breaking out of these states of mind that are so difficult and so painful. At at the very least, as as, as I said before, it's like if we can just stop hating them, that would be huge. If we could just stop hating our own states of mind. Um, Ajahn Chah, who's one of my favorite teachers, he he says that um, um, you you just have to get to know these states of mind for what they are. And then it's like um, when you see somebody coming down the street, you know, you wonder who they are, you go, you know, you try to get a fix, you're kind of going a little crazy until you get a sense of who they are. And then once you know who they are, it's enough just to let them pass. I love that as an image. Once you know what these things are, once you know how they operate, it's enough just to let them pass. Actually can have this sense of sitting back and letting things move through us and not be so caught up in one way or another. This is the fruit of practice. I mean, it's far out (laughs) when you think about it. So this last one, vinyana, uh, sense consciousness, gets a little tricky, it's kind of subtle. So I hope you uh, stay stay with me on it. it. The idea in this is also to see Even consciousness itself as something that we pick up and we need to put down. Even this experience of consciousness. So you have to get a sense of what the Buddha is talking about in consciousness. It's a little different than we talk about it, um, maybe more colloquially. Um, He says that there are six kinds of consciousness that have to do with these six sense spheres. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensing, and thinking and feeling. So that uh, there's a consciousness that's associated with each of these physical and mental um, sense doors, sensory events. And um, that what happens is, um, there is in each moment of experience, there is something, something makes contact at one of the sense doors. And so there is the eye that sees There is the object, for example, that is seen. And then there is this subtle ephemeral energy that we call consciousness, that it it links these two. And, And he refers to it as plain and simple seeing. There's the eye, there's the thing that is seen, and then there's seeing. And unless that consciousness is there, I won't see you know, so it explains how you can be looking right at something and not see it, because um, hearing consciousness might be here, or thinking consciousness is here, you know, how many times have you just kind of stared, I used to watch the news, and, and many times you just kind of stare at it like this, and then, you know, I, I, I tuned in to to catch the weather, and then somebody will come in and say, well, what what's the weather, and it's like, Wow, I have no idea. I just saw saw it. (laughs) You know, but I was thinking about something else. Completely gone, not even connected with that experience. So, I mean, that was very helpful to me right there, just to understand. But it's a very specific way that you can see the truth of what he's saying. There are different kinds of consciousness, and they aren't all up at the same time. There's only one up at a time. So our experience is one of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling, seeing, hearing. You know, it goes back and forth. It depends, it keeps changing. And this is very important because he's saying in no uncertain terms that even consciousness is not a permanent condition. It's not self. It keeps changing from one second to the next. There is a different kind of consciousness that's present. So what happens is this, a couple of things. Um, These moments get strung together and um, we create a sense of sort of of a continuity that really isn't actually there. You know, uh, what happens is uh, each moment of consciousness is actually discrete. There's seeing, hearing, smelling, etc. But we'll string these together and get identified with what looks like and what feels like continuous consciousness. You know, it, 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 you know, I'm conscious, and that's that's the way it gets held in our experience. But when we don't see this, when well, we can't see consciousness as it really is, when we just when we get caught up in this um, continuous perception of our experience, we can't see it as it really is. It's constantly changing, and we create this sense of, of somebody who is conscious in this continuous way. So you have this one, that that's one of the effects of it. And actually, because of you can see how because of not seeing that correctly, we're actually relating to consciousness in a way that makes it impossible to see consciousness. It's incredible, but that's what we do. So, and because we can't see it in this way, it, it's as if we settle for a lesser, explanation of what's happening. So there is seeing, but what happens is very quickly we get identified with that and we say, I see. I see. I am the one who is seeing. But at very subtle levels, that's not the way, that's not what's happening. Yet this sense of me as the one who is seeing takes on mammoth, it takes on a life of its own. You know, it, we're very caught up with that sense of me as the one who is doing all this. There, there really isn't any I see. <laughs> there isn't any I see. It, it, it's just always seeing. It just, it feels like it. But we have to get quite subtle in our looking to be able to see it a little bit differently. This is actually the mind clinging to consciousness. It's taking a moment of consciousness and claiming it as its own. This is me. This is my seeing, my hearing, my smelling, my tasting, and we do this constantly. Now, the the, the way to break out of it is. It's very. It's, it can be difficult to see in everyday waking life, but it's not impossible. It, 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 sometimes it just sort of happens, like like a crack in the cosmic egg, where you, you sort of settle into this experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensing. And we can see it for ourselves in that sense. But usually it takes a a more formal or or deep meditation to be able to see it. But in in the same way that you can look at the body and you can have a sense of, um, it's sort of like you click on the the screen of the body and you can... look at, examine the body as apart as from the other act, um, aspects of experience. Like you can tune in to say heat and you can just notice heat and the absence of heat, right? You can just sort of pick some some aspect of your physical experience and watch that continuously and begin to get a sense of it. It's not that the other aggregates uh, aren't arising, but what we've done is, as meditators is just kind of pull something out and say, well, I'm just gonna look at that. Well, you can do the same thing with consciousness. It's, it's very possible to do that. And that's why like in intensive retreats, the instructors will say, you know, to um, label things, thinking, hearing, smelling, tasting, you know, you're actually trying to connect more accurately with that actual experience of consciousness that's part of it part of what we're doing with the labeling is just to connect it all but as you get quite still you can notice this moment separate and apart from everything else and so what will happen in a moment like that is it's as if the me as the sense of me as the taster and the thing that I am tasting fall away. And the totality of my experience, even if only for an instant, is tasting. Just plain and simple tasting. And when when you have that experience, everything can be changed dramatically from that point because you're actually seeing the truth of what the Buddha is saying about consciousness very directly It's just that experience. It's just a mental event that uh, we call tasting. And it's happening uh, separate from the thing that I'm tasting. It's happening separate from the tongue that is tasting it. You can actually see that for ourselves. But what will happen is the mind will move in and grab a hold of that and own it somehow. It's fascinating to watch it. So as meditators, we want to try and sometimes it will take deep practice just to see this moment um, separate and apart from uh, the other experiences of the body and the mind it's quite possible so clearly when you can do that it can be actually be very fascinating in the sense of uh, you see that you're not the taster you see that there's not the thing that's tasting. There's just just this experience of tasting. And one can actually cling to that. This is another way that we cling to consciousness where we, we say like, oh, that was far out. You know, this whole sense of self will fall away in that because there isn't any me and it anymore. There's just this experience of tasting. And what will happen to uh, meditators often in intensive retreat is like grab hold of that and think, oh, now I've got it. Now I really get it. There isn't any me, but all they're doing actually is clinging to a moment of consciousness. They've actually just experienced a a passing mental event. So if you stay with it, then you will see that tasting is a flicker. (laughs) It's gone. (laughs) Before you even... To have a sense of it, it's gone. And here comes seeing, hearing, smelling, right? Just like that. It's, It's constantly, constantly changing. And so if you can observe at this refined level, we can see for ourselves very directly that it's all changing. Even consciousness is changing constantly. And it's not who we are. Any effort to make it, to grab hold of it, and make it be who we are, and broils us back in the soup of delusion. So, you get a sense of this, that we, we don't have to, that we cling to these aggregates, we, we identify with them as being who we are, but we, we don't have to try to stop doing that. All we have to do is just open to the experience, to try to see it in a more direct and we find an impartial and detached way. And everything that we need to see will happen from there. We'll see for ourselves very directly, and this is not far out, that this sense of self is like a perceptual, conceptual overlay. It's like everything is happening, and then here comes this sense of it's mine. You know, I did that. It's like a view, it's a grabbing hold of this moment's experience and trying to make something permanent out of it. When you begin to break it all down, you see that these perceptions, these concepts of which self is one, (laughs) self is a sankara. Self is is like a combination of sanya and sankara. It's a perception about things as it relates to me. But can you see that? You're already not there anymore. As long as we keep buying into it, then what happens is that we set up this relationship with the world that is like me and it. It's always me and it. And in that kind of a setup, we'll never be happy. There's there's no way that you can ever merge with everything that it is that you think you need in order to be happy. Because it's always other. (laughs) It's always outside. Can you feel that? It's, like, it's this massive delusion. <laughs> the Buddha saw it. <laughs> he got it. And he's pointing the way for us to get it. So that, interestingly, we'll be happy. <laughs> Stop following these um, unwise, foolish, delusional views of what it takes to be happy. Break that whole construct down. And then you got what is. And it's fine. It's fine the way it is. Fascinating, isn't it? So that's, that's all I have for you tonight.
1: <laughs>
0: I hope it's helpful. <laughs> some pointers and again thank you thank you very much I'm I'm afraid I've gone a little over and uh, I'm sorry when I do that I really I get a little into it (laughs) and uh, if people have questions maybe you can stay for a few minutes okay thank you take care